As you're able, turn with me, if you would, in your copy of the Bible to Lamentations chapter 4. That text, if you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles, can be found starting on page 689. Now, to orient ourselves to the text, I know it's um, probably been a few weeks, if not longer, since we studied this passage. Uh, Recall that Lamentations as a whole is a text that reflects upon the most devastating event in Israel's history, namely the destruction of the Jerusalem temple and Jerusalem itself, which happened in 586 BC, and then the 70-year exile of God's people that followed after that. And Lamentations 4, chapter 4 specifically, continues Jeremiah's lengthy reflection upon that event. And as such, it repeats many of the same themes that we've grown accustomed to hearing over and over throughout Lamentations as a whole. Though, as we'll see in a moment, it's not simply a copy and paste of what we've just heard throughout the previous chapters. There's a lot of other things that surface in this chapter, which we'll touch on in turn. So, with that in mind, hear now the word of the Lord. Since Lamentations 4 is a bit longer of a passage, I'm going to begin by reading only the first 10 verses, and then eventually by the time we're done, we'll have covered all of it. So, hear now the word of the Lord. This is specifically Lamentations 4, 1 through 10. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lay scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breasts, they nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has become greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. This is the word of the Lord. There's a story that I heard um, several years ago now, and it's apparently a story that's false, some way to start a story. It never actually happened, Uh, but it's been cited over the years, even in a speech by by Ronald Reagan as historical fact, and it's at least interesting to, to think about for a moment. So the story goes, in 1899, the commissioner of the U.S. Patent Office at the time, a man named Charles Holland Duell, sent a letter to then-president William McKinley advising him to shut down the patent office because, quote, everything that can be invented has been invented. Now, again, there's no evidence that Duell ever said that or made such a recommendation, but can you imagine the audacity of such a request had it been made, given everything that has been invented since 1899. You know, powered flight and personal computers and air conditioning, just to name a few. 
No, I think we recognize even today that for as many advances as, as many of us have witnessed, even in our own lifetimes, that there's always room for improvement. There's always room for new inventions that might enhance our quality of life. I'd be surprised if any of us were under the impression like this mythical version of Duel that there's nothing left to be invented that could possibly be invented. But as we live our lives and we enjoy all of the comforts and all the benefits that we indeed enjoy, is there still a part of us, I wonder, that imagines these inventions, whatever they are, can somehow quench our thirst for comfort and security in life. And considering all the things that we enjoy, is there still a part of us that lives as if those things can somehow, in some way, replace God? And that with every new technological or medical advancement, our need for God somehow fades into the oblivion? Is there part of us that still lives our lives as if we have basically already arrived. Well, when we turn to our passage, Jeremiah, he reflects and he laments, as we've grown accustomed to throughout the book, upon the destruction of Jerusalem, how that destruction affected all sorts of, all sorts of people, all sorts of our citizens. He tells us the reason, again, why all of this happened, and then he comments a little bit on what's next in the lives of the people of God. But throughout his lament, Jeremiah also surveys various benefits or blessings that the people of God enjoyed and benefited from prior to Jerusalem's destruction. He mentions, for example, the luxuries of the cities, the God-appointed leaders of the people, the prophets and the priests and the elders. He mentions one of Judah's geopolitical allies at the time, and even the Davidic king of the day, known as King Zedekiah. But as Jeremiah surveys all of these apparent blessings that the people of God enjoyed, he systematically dismantles the ability of each and every one of them to save. You see, Israel may have thought that the presence of these blessings meant that they had arrived, and in several respects, they lived as if these things made them invincible. Nothing they thought could touch them, nothing they thought could undercut their prominence, but many of these blessings, which were never intended to save, Israel treated as if they could. They treated things like the temple as some sort of talisman and assumed that by its very presence that they were secure without a doubt, regardless of how they lived. And yet in their sin, the citizens of Jerusalem failed to give honor to the only one they were accountable to, the one, the only one who provides, saves, gives, and takes away, namely the Lord. And as Jeremiah reflects on the events leading up to and following Jerusalem's destruction in 586 BC, he invites the people of God, including you and I today, to reflect on the question, who or what can really save? Who or what can really save? And that's our big idea, which is more of a question that hangs over this entire text. That is, who can save? Who can save? And as we study this passage, we're going to look at it in essentially four parts. You can follow along with me if you're using one of the sermon handout guides. Um, first, we're going to see Jeremiah tell us that Jerusalem cannot save. Second, we're going to hear him tell us that the leaders of Jerusalem cannot save. Then third, we're going to hear him tell us that no nation or king can save and then finally, he wraps up this lament by telling us, in short, 
that only the Lord can save. So three things which decidedly cannot save before we finish up with this brief note of hope. So let's begin with our first point. First, Jerusalem cannot save. Now throughout these 10 verses that we just read a moment ago, Jeremiah, as it were, walks us through the streets of Jerusalem after the destruction of the city. And he reflects as he's done throughout Lamentations on just how far Jerusalem had tragically fallen from its former glory. First, see in verse 1 that he remarks on the physical architecture of the city, and he particularly focuses on the temple itself that lie at the heart of the city. You see, the temple at one time was the most glorious display of Israel's status as the people of God. It, It was a building that stood on an elevated place in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion. It stood above all of the other structures in the city, and the whole thing was covered in gold. You know, the first century historian Josephus, who writes about five, six hundred years after these events, um, in a work entitled The Antiquities of the Jews, he, he nevertheless describes this temple in great detail, and he explains that the whole temple shined and dazzled the eyes of those who entered by the splendor of the gold that was on every side of it. Josephus also describes how the stones of the temple, these massive stones, were so carefully cut and polished that it seemed to spectators that no hammer or other instruments was used in fitting the stones together. Rather, Josephus writes, the entire materials had naturally united themselves together, that the agreement of one part with another seemed rather to have been natural than to have arisen from the force of tools upon them. Beautiful structure, if you can imagine it. But what does Jeremiah reflect upon in the aftermath of the city's destruction? Well, first he tells us the gold. This gold, which once layered the entire temple complex, had been so tarnished, covered in soot, caked with dirt, that it no longer shined like it once did. And then those stones, those giant stones that at one time so naturally fit together, were now scattered unnaturally throughout the city streets. That which once accented the glory of God and the honor of the people of God now sits in the city in absolute ruins. But even more alarming than the destruction of the physical architecture of the city, which Jeremiah highlights in the first verse, is the state of the city's population. You see, throughout these verses, Jeremiah highlights how young and old, how rich and poor, how everyone in the city was caught up in its destruction. Now, without a doubt, the most distressing of the descriptions given here is how the youngest children fared in the destruction. The most dependent, the most vulnerable in the city were so parched that their tongues stick to the roof of their mouths, and they beg for food, but to no avail. And even more unnatural than the perfectly cut stones that lay scattered throughout the streets is how the mothers are described as treating their own children. Jeremiah describes how animals like jackals cared better for their young than the mothers of Jerusalem. Horrifically, he describes how these these mothers who should have been the most naturally disposed towards compassion to their very own flesh and blood, they're described in verse 10 through unnatural animalistic imagery. He describes them as cannibals who boil their own children in a desperate attempt to secure food. Even the most tender in the city are driven to these despicable, unnatural actions. And these descriptions are, according to Deuteronomy 28, the height of Israel's covenant curse. You see, 
the, the Lord had promised over a thousand years before the events of this passage unfold through Moses that if his people violated the terms of the covenant, which they had done for centuries leading up to these events, uh, Moses tells us that an enemy would besiege the cities in which they trusted and that the most refined men and women of the city would be reduced to the most despicable acts of barbarism like we read here. This is, friends, nothing less than the curse and judgment of God upon His people, a judgment that rival Jeremiah tells us what happened in Sodom centuries before, and no amount of money or prestige could have delivered the city or saved the people of God. Jeremiah notes in verse 5 that the wealthy of the city now perish in the streets and embrace ash heaps. In verses 7 through 8, he observes how another class of people, those of royal blood, who were once the picture of health and prosperity in the city, have now been reduced to a filthy, disheveled, and malnourished, conquered people. Now, there were other points in Israel's long history where things seemed almost as dire as this, but in those situations, what we find in the Old Testament is that the Lord repeatedly delivers His people despite themselves time and time again. That's what happened a few centuries before the events of Lamentations, when the king on the throne of Judah at the time, King Hezekiah, uh, he was was being besieged by a nation to his north, a nation known as Assyria. Assyria had barreled down on the cities of Judah. They made it just outside the walls of Jerusalem, but the Lord miraculously saved His people right in the nick of time. You see, the Lord had acted in concrete ways in the past to deliver His people, but many of Jerusalem's citizens were now under the impression, perhaps because of stories like that, that this meant that Jerusalem were invincible. Now, Jeremiah himself in Jeremiah 7 had rebuked and warned the people of Jerusalem for that way of thinking, specifically for imagining that the very presence of the temple standing in Jerusalem implied that no ill could ever befall the city. He rebuked the people of God for thinking that way. That was never the case. But sadly, Jerusalem and her citizens, they have to discover the hard way that the many blessings they enjoyed in the city from the temple all the way down to the ordinary provisions the Lord supplied for families were never intended to be an end in themselves. Rather, they were always intended to remind Israel of the God of the covenant and how apart from Him and Him alone, there's no security and there's nothing else that can save in His place. And Jerusalem discovered the hard way that apart from the Lord, they were, as a people, incredibly vulnerable and they were absolutely never invincible. Let me tell you a story. Um, Some of you may know this story as well. When the U.S. um, entered World War II in 1941, uh, Japan had something of a perception of invincibility themselves. Um, They had just launched their devastating attack on Pearl Harbor, and their military right after that had swept through Southeast Asia, taking places like the Philippines, places like Singapore, without any notable Allied victory. Things looked bad for the Allies in both the Atlantic and in the Pacific theater. But in the midst of this string of defeats, the Allies were able to launch a mostly symbolic surprise raid on Tokyo. It was known as the Doolittle Raid for the officer who uh, led the raid, and the U.S. was able to launch 16 mid-range bombers off an aircraft carrier and in a surprise attack struck Tokyo. The the SAC Museum over in Ashland has a a, a pretty cool display uh, about all of this, if you're interested. 
Now, again, this raid was largely symbolic, and it resulted in very minimal, if any, real damage in Tokyo, but it did have the effect of unsettling the Japanese military brass and the citizens of Tokyo who had imagined up to this point that they were invincible, that nothing could touch them. In fact, in the aftermath of the attack, the Japanese had to significantly increase its defensive perimeter as this new reality underscoring their vulnerability came into focus. You see, Japan, they learned a lesson in that that took far too long for Jerusalem to learn. But what about us? Do we understand our own vulnerabilities as well? First, do we appreciate the depth of wickedness in this world? Now, maybe we look at the state of affairs in Jerusalem as it's described in the text before us, and we think to ourselves that we're too civilized, we're too advanced as a civilization to ever walk a path like that. But understand that even though civilizations advance and new technologies are patented, the human heart, apart from Christ and His work in the Holy Spirit, does not change. And the tragic wickedness on display in Jerusalem's fall from glory stemmed from hearts that were plagued with the very same sin disease as that plagues people today. Understand that we're not as invincible as we might think. And out of that, we have to recognize that nothing we might turn to in our own context can save. Now, of course, it's true that the Lord provides us a number of good things in this world. The Father of lights has showered down a number of gifts upon His creation. But none of those things, even the most useful technologies or medical advances that we could identify, can save us from our desperately wicked hearts or bear the weight that we may be tempted to place upon them. Jerusalem, even at its heights, even in its glory, could not save a desperately wicked Israel. And the same is true for us today too, friends. But now that Jeremiah has finished this survey, surveying Jerusalem, and he turns next then, not to the city itself, but to the leaders of Jerusalem, and he observes that even those leaders who were ordained and installed to lead the people of God as representatives of God, well, they too have the inability to save. So, let's do our second point. Second, the leaders cannot save. And so, for this, let's turn our attention to verses 11 through 16, where Jeremiah highlights the sins of the prophets and priests and elders of Jerusalem. Let me read these verses for us. The Lord gave full vent to His wrath. He poured out His hot anger, and He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord Himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. So, at this point, Jeremiah, he begins to explain why. Why all of these reversals that we heard about in the first ten verses came about. And for one thing, he tells us that all of these things happened not by chance, not simply because there was a geopolitical foe in the area and that was it, but because the Lord saw fit at this time and place in history to judge His people according to His Word. 
Now, this is the first time in chapter 4 that the name of the Lord is used, but at this point in Lamentations, it shouldn't surprise us to read this, because Jeremiah has highlighted throughout Lamentations the theological reasons for Jerusalem's destruction. But as he continues in our passage here, he also highlights the sins of Jerusalem's leaders as one of the chief culprits behind the Lord's judgments. He mentions first the sins of the prophets, then the iniquities of the priests, both of whom he says shed the blood of the righteous. You see both groups here, prophets and priests, in the years leading up to Babylon's invasion in 586 B.C., they had failed to communicate truth among the people of God. They failed to call Israel to repentance, which was one of their chief tasks. They'd given instead false assurances to God's people in their sin. That's all right, all is well, when in fact it was not. And they even sought to put to death those prophets, people like Jeremiah and Isaiah, who were busy warning the people of their sin and speaking truth in the lives of God's people. And so both groups, according to Jeremiah, they bear responsibility for the present destruction. And now both groups, well, they also bear the shame that followed from Israel's devastation. Notice that in the wake of the disaster, Jeremiah shows how these leaders lost any prestige that they once had. As they wander throughout the streets, defiled, it seems, by the blood that they shed, they're described as being ceremonially unclean, like a leper with skin disease. And people shout at them. They say, stay away from us. You're unclean. Don't touch us or come near to us. We don't want your uncleanliness. And this is ironic because in the Old Testament, it was the priests who were called to make pronouncements about what was clean and unclean. But now it's the surviving population of Jerusalem who are left to make such pronouncements, pronouncements that the priests were inept to make before the city's destruction. And now we find that they themselves, those who were ordained and installed, set apart to be the holiest people in Israel, they're now identified as the pinnacle of unholiness among the people of God. Now, the implication of all of this, I think, is pretty clear, and it's that the leaders of Jerusalem could not or cannot save. They can't save. They have no ability to save. And of course, this would have been true even if the leaders had proved themselves to be holy and upright. And in fact, if they had been holy and upright, what they would have done is consistently pointed the people of Jerusalem to the only one who can save. It's a hallmark of gospel leadership in the church. It's an attitude that says with John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. But in this case, these leaders were not only not doing that, they were leading the people of God down a path of sin and rebellion. And when Jerusalem finally bore the consequence of their sin, notice what Jeremiah tells us. He tells us that the nations, the nations who are watching all of this failure unfold from afar, they're stunned by what they see. In verse 12, Jeremiah tells us that the kings of the earth, the inhabitants of the world, they're stunned that the city of David had been breached and laid waste in the way that it was. Just as the people of Japan and America were stunned to hear that Doolittle's raiders penetrated the airspace over Tokyo in 1942, so too the nations surrounding Jerusalem and Israel could not believe that any foe could have penetrated the gates of Jerusalem. Now, perhaps they too heard the story of how the Lord delivered Jerusalem from the clutches of Assyria a couple centuries before this. Perhaps they knew 
that the God of this city was altogether different than the so-called gods of the nations, but whatever they knew or thought about Jerusalem or the people of God or the Lord himself, they're left stunned that the city of Jerusalem could fall so far. You know, one of the challenges that I think we often face in parenting, parents, you might agree with this, is that our kids sometimes expect that we can do everything. They never imagine that we might be tired and need a nap. They don't take into account the lingering aches and pains that come with old age. And depending on their age, they often have little sense about how money works. Now, they're kids, and so you expect their naivety, but the expectations that are often placed on moms and dads can be pretty unrealistic. I, for one, just don't have the creativity or stamina that my kids sometimes expect me to have 24 hours a day. Now, whatever the reason the nations here are stunned at Jerusalem's destruction, whether it's because of the physical defenses that they knew the city had, or whether they knew what was true about the Lord and His covenant with His people, or even if it had to do with what they thought of the leaders themselves, these God-appointed leaders in the city, we notice that they're stunned. They're stunned that Jerusalem fell. But friends, don't be stunned yourself to recognize specifically that your leaders have limits too, and ultimately that your leaders cannot save. Now, of course, in the church, you have every right to expect things like godliness from your leaders. There are certain standards that you should expect of your leaders. Don't be stunned, though, when your leaders let you down. Don't imagine that they can pair the weight of your every need and expectation. Instead, expect them above everything else to point you to Jesus the only one who can save. Expect them to pursue holiness in the power of the Spirit and to spur you on to holiness too, whether you want it or not. Expect your leaders to walk in the light of God's Word, but don't expect that your leaders, or any leaders in the church for that matter, could ever save you. They're just as unable to save you and to satisfy your every need as the leaders in Jerusalem were unable in Jeremiah's day. Now, Jeremiah's focus in these verses lay specifically in in the prophets and priests of Israel and how these leaders proved themselves to be miserable. But as he continues, he turns next from the religious leaders, as it were, to the political and military leaders of Israel and at least one surrounding nation, though here too we'll find that Jeremiah laments that these were inept and unable to save as well. So third, this leads to our third point, no nation or king can save. And follow along as I read from verses 17 through 20. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near, our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Now, I wonder if sometimes we are so familiar as a people of the West with some of those dramatic stories of Hollywood or even in some cases, those dramatic stories of history where when all hope seems to be lost for a people or or for a nation or for a military, that reinforcements arrive just in the right nick of time to save the day. I'm sure you all can think of a, a story where that happens. 
But in the case of Jerusalem's siege here, there'd be no reinforcements to come and, and save the day. There would be no heroic deliverance for them. But that's not to say that Israel hadn't hoped for such a deliverance. Because in verse 17, we're given this imagery of a sentry or a lookout watching on the horizon, straining their eyes in vain, hoping that a nation would come to the rescue just in time and take on Babylon and put an end to their siege. And what the prophet specifically has in mind here is a faint hope among the citizens of Jerusalem right at this time in history that Egypt, the nation of Egypt, might dramatically come to their aid and come to their rescue just in the nick of time. You see, historically, Egypt had come to Israel's aid before this, these events, by temporarily drawing the Babylonian army away from Jerusalem, only to be defeated themselves and for Babylon to return to Jerusalem again. Now, throughout the prophets of the Old Testament, God constantly urges His people, don't trust in these sorts of alliances or false hopes. And specifically, He calls out throughout the prophets this alliance that Israel was trusting in with Egypt. He calls them instead to trust in Him. Don't trust in those alliances. But in their direst moments, as Babylon stands outside the city walls, Jerusalem is once again hoping, trusting, waiting for this alliance with an idolatrous people, Egypt specifically, to come through for them. Now, Egypt ultimately lets them down, and no other nation comes to their aid. But this is Israel. This is Jerusalem. They also have God's anointed king on the throne, remember, the one who sits on the throne of David. So surely he can take on Babylon, right? Well, no, because when God's king, just like his prophets and priests whom he calls, show themselves to be godless, unholy leaders, the Lord is still going to judge his house. Having the temple in Jerusalem is no guarantee of the absence of judgment and neither does having the king descended from David sitting on his throne in Jerusalem guarantee that judgment won't befall his people either. Notice that in verse 20, uh, Jeremiah tells us that when Babylon's breakthrough looked inevitable, the Lord's anointed, who at this point was King Zedekiah, the last king um, before the exile, he attempted, we hear, to flee from the city. But instead of getting away, he was instead captured in the enemy pits, the enemy traps. And the Bible tells us elsewhere that when he was captured, his sons were slaughtered before his eyes. His eyes were then gouged out, and he was bound in chains, and in his shame taken to Babylon in exile. You see, no nation could save, not Egypt. No king could save, not even the anointed Davidic king on the throne. And no last-ditch effort to flee the city would work for the people of God either. Because as verses 18 through 19 indicate, any attempt to flee was met by a faster enemy who would hunt you down. And so in the end, it didn't matter if you turned to your plan B or your plan C. When Israel or even we look to anything other than the Lord to save, it's inevitable that we will face one failure after another. Now, I vaguely recall a conversation that I had one afternoon, probably more than a decade ago at this point, um, with a couple from the United Kingdom in a shopping center in Orlando, Florida. 
That's a lot. But for context, um, I was working at the time for a college ministry, and at that point we were doing some what I'll call cold call evangelism among tourists in Orlando. And I remember this conversation pretty clearly. Uh, there was this couple who, who was willing to engage in spiritual dialogue with me and a friend, and I remember in the course of our conversation asking them something along the lines of, what would you do if the thing you invested all of your hope and capital in failed you? And the response of the man I was talking to was pretty typical, I think, of how most people think. He responded that, well, if that were to happen and this thing let me down, I'd simply just find something else to find hope and meaning in. And then if that failed, well, failed, well, then he said that he would just turn to something else to find meaning and hope in, and on and on and on. And you see, I don't think this is altogether different than what Jerusalem was doing on the eve of her destruction. Whether they thought about Egypt as their backup plan and maybe the Davidic king as their plan C and fleeing the, plan, fleeing the city as their plan D, they're clearly turning everywhere they can except for the Lord. And the question for us to reflect upon is whether we see Jesus Christ in the same light. You see, when we think about what it means as Christians to be satisfied in Jesus or to rest in Jesus Christ, does that mean that Jesus is your only comfort in life and death? Or is He functionally instead your plan B or your backup parachute? Is he someone you might talk about from time to time or talk to even less occasionally, but more often than not as someone you keep in your back pocket for those moments where you have no other option? How does Jesus stack up against all of the other loves in your life? Is he someone you can really trust to save and deliver and even satisfy your soul, even if the earth should give way and the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea? Friends, God gives us a lot of good things, but at the end of the day, nothing, no relationship, no job, no material comforts can bear the weight of the needs of your soul. Don't let Jesus slip down to being your plan B or your plan C. Instead, rest upon Him when, like Israel, all hope seems lost. Rest upon Him also even when you're blessed with so much and know that in times of plenty and in times of want, the Lord will show Himself, as He's already done throughout history, to be the only one who can save. And this leads to our final point. Fourth and finally, only the Lord can save. And here we're looking at our final verses, verses 21 through 22, where we read this. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer, but your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. The hope we finally arrive at in our passage, much like the hope that breaks through occasionally in Lamentations, is a hope that's only dictated in brief. Here it's really only just two verses that dictate for us this hope. But it's nevertheless this brief hope that bears the weight of all of our grief, all of our prayers, and all of our confidence. So what is this hope then? Well, the hope as it's described by Jeremiah is a twofold hope. First, there's hope that the Lord is, in the end, going to judge His enemies. And specifically here, it's the nation of Edom 
that receives particular focus. Now, now Edom was one of those smaller nations in the ancient Near East that was occasionally a thorn in Israel's side. And during the Babylonian invasion and then in its aftermath, Eden took advantage of Israel's misfortunes. They mocked Israel. They even pillaged Israel. And the Lord not only has some hard things to say to Edom in this passage, but even the entire book of Obadiah, that short book in the Old Testament, is, an or- is basically a book dedicated as an oracle of judgment against Edom. So according to Jeremiah, Jerusalem may lie in ashes at the present, but it's only a matter of time until judgment would pass to Edom. God was going to judge his enemies, and the same holds true today, too. But the second part of Israel's hope, and and, and here's the, the more positive aspect of it, is that the judgment against Israel in the aftermath of Jerusalem's destruction and the exile is now, we read, accomplished or completed. Understand that Israel in this whole historical event, they've been brought to their lowest point. The temple was reduced to ashes, and the people of God were now in exile, but the good news is that this punishment for the time being is over, and that in just a matter of time, 70 years specifically, the Lord would restore them back to the land of promise. Now, it may take a while for Israel to get back to that land, and it'll still be nearly 600 years from this point until the fullness of time arrives and Jesus Christ takes upon Himself a far greater judgment than befell wicked Israel. But the assurance that all who look to Christ by faith can take with them from this brief note of hope is that for us, our punishment, our judgment, our discipline is never the final word in the Christian life. Let me give you an illustration for a moment. You know, two of my um, favorite sports out there, I would say, are Major League Baseball and Premier League Soccer, or as some would refer to, real football. Uh, Now, these are obviously very different sports in in several respects, and even down to the very structure of their respective leagues. You see, if my Baltimore Orioles are are the worst team in baseball one season, not this season, but, but most seasons that seems to have been the case, there's nowhere for them to go but up. Uh, Now, they may be miserable for some time, as they have been, but they can't get any lower. If they're number 30th in the league, they will stay at 30th. They can't go below 30th in the Major League Baseball League. However, in Premier League soccer, the case is very different. Because if Liverpool Football Club were to finish the season as the worst team in the Premier League, may it never be, uh, they would be relegated or demoted to the lower league. You see, the Orioles aren't ever going to get demoted to AAA baseball, at least I hope not, Uh, but in Premier League in European soccer, if you finish last, the result is you actually get demoted to the league under that league. And then if you have another bad season, the next season, you get demoted to the league under that league, and so on and so forth. Uh, You would get demoted again and again, and in much of world soccer as opposed to Major League Baseball, you could theoretically get so low season after season that your very existence as a professional club could be on the line. Now, don't press this illustration too far, but the point is that for those of us who are in a right relationship with the Lord through Jesus Christ alone, know that the Lord has secured you in such a way that your lowest moments and your hardest sin struggles will not utterly destroy you. You may be brought low, like Israel was because of their sin, but those to whom God has committed Himself and secured through His Son, He will not lose. 
You will not fall through the clutches of Jesus' arms into oblivion, or more accurately, into hell itself. Our confession even tells us and reminds us that though we may fall under the Father's displeasure for a time, if we're justified, we never lose that. But for those who stand opposed to God, like Edom, the matter is entirely different. For those who stand opposed to God, there's no security. You will sadly but really drink the cup of God's wrath like Edom. And so the question that faces all of us is how do you relate to the only one who can save our Lord Jesus Christ? Friends, Israel's leaders at this point, remember, were miserable. They were miserable. Their prophets, with some exceptions, tickled the ears of God's people. The, The priests were negligent in their duties, and the kings were just wicked. But in Christ, we have a prophet, a priest, and a king who really is able to save. And not only that, while Jerusalem lay in ashes, the gold tarnished and the ruined stone scattered, Jesus is a king who builds for himself a far more glorious temple in his body and in the church. The New Testament calls us, in fact, living stones in this temple. And in the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus will one day bring, John tells us in Revelation that there will be gold so pure that it looks like glass. Friends, at the end of the age, we will dwell in a new creation that will not tarnish while we worship a king who is and will make all things new. And so as we prepare to close and turn to the Lord's Supper, where we're reminded through sacrament of these truths, let me leave us with this closing thought. Friends, do not lament that nothing under heaven or earth can save, because in Christ we have a Savior. You know, I'm reminded of Revelation chapter 5, where the Apostle John in that text, he stands in the heavenly throne room of God. And do you know what he does? He laments. He laments. In fact, he weeps for a moment because he recognizes that no one, no one, nothing under heaven or earth or under the earth is able to enact God's saving plan of redemption on the earth. He recognizes in a moment that nothing in this world can save. No one is found to be worthy. That is until one of the celestial attendants in the homeroom, in, in the heavenly throne room comes to John. And he says to him, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And it's this news, and it's the ensuing vision that follows in Revelation 5 that leads not to weeping, but to a chorus of praise that fills the heavenly temple, fills heaven and earth and the places under the earth. Friends, we need to come to the same place that John did in Revelation 5, understanding that nothing apart from Christ can save. But once we're undone by that truth, and we recognize that for truth, friends, then we're invited to join ourselves in heart and mind and soul and all that's within us in the worship of heaven, because there is one who saves. And he invites us now, as he does every Lord's Day, to come to him and worship him as his beloved people, only because Jesus Christ was found worthy to save. Pray with me. Father, reminders like this are hard and convicting to see that all of these things that Jerusalem trusted in could not save, and maybe to realize even our own lives that all of these things we might be trusting in or resting upon are proving themselves to be in every which way miserable saviors. Father, I pray that you would drive us to our knees in repentance, that you would show us the ways in which we're trusting and in princes or 
um, other things in this world to save us, which are not able to bear that weight, and that instead you would remind us through word and sacrament of our Lord Jesus Christ, who took upon himself our sin so that we could come before you and truly be satisfied and know that we have salvation, salvation in no other name under heaven or earth. Father, I pray that you would drive us to repentance, each of us, and that you would renew us again in the truths of your gospel. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.